welcome to CV Now, your podcast from Houston Methodist Debakey CV Education. I'm your host, George Tripsis. Digital health has been slowly making inroads into cardiovascular practice for several years. However, thanks to COVID-19 pandemic and the sudden need for distance care, the digital transformation saw rapid acceleration, forcing practitioners, patients, and healthcare systems to adapt to this new digital reality. Who would have thought that when we started to think about this issue, which was before the pandemic occurred, that uh, we will have a stress test for digital health and how to take care of our patients. This is certainly not the only area of digital health. It can affect population health, how we interpret studies, how we interpret, how we put together information that each one of us individually may not be able to grab a hold of what its implications are, what its diagnostic power is, and how to manage patients. The Methodist Debakey Cardiovascular Journal recently tackled the digital healthcare transformation in its latest issue, featuring in-depth reviews from experts from around the United States who examine the evidence for telemedicine, remote monitoring, patient apps, and more. On today's show, we're bringing together several of those experts to discuss opportunities, obstacles, and drawbacks of digital health and debate the best path forward. The journal's editor-in-chief, Dr. Miguel Quiones, is co-host with issue guest editors Dr. William Zogby and Dr. Ahmed Solomon. They are joined by Dr. Karam Nasser, Sanjeev Bhavani, Tim Garson, James Min, and John Mandrola, all who bring different and sometimes conflicting perspectives on healthcare's digital future. And welcome to um, the Methodist Debate Cardiovascular Journal. Uh, I'm Mike Winones, editor-in-chief of the journal. And uh, tonight, we're going to dedicate the webcast to the topic that was presented in the December issue of the journal, the digital healthcare transformation. And this is an area that is really exploding. It has still not reached full uh, development in everyday's use, but so many things are happening that we felt it was important in the journal to dedicate one issue to start discussing where we are today and uh, what the future might be and also some of the challenges that all these developments may be presenting for us as physicians and to our patients. I was just very fortunate to have two wonderful experts to help us put this together uh, as guest editors for the journal, um, Dr. William Sogby, uh, my friend and colleague for 30 years, currently the chairman of the Department of Cardiology, but previously also president of the American College of Cardiology, and he's the Elkins uh, Chair of, of, uh, of Cardiology and extremely well-known everywhere, so does not need much introduction. We were joking a minute ago that I would need maybe an hour to give all of his uh, int- proper introduction. And the other member of the team is uh, Dr. Ahmed Soliman, who is our co-director of the clinic, uh, of our outpatient clinic, but also from the very early days, he, he got very interested in this topic. and He's actually spearheading a lot of our own developments in the telemedicine and, and digital technology. So with the two of them, we started to put together a group of uh, writers, and uh, we really are very fortunate. We have some great experts. And many of them are joining us tonight. So without much delay, I will put it in the hands of Dr. Sogby, who will introduce some of the speakers and get us going. Bill? Thank you, Mike, and uh, welcome, everyone. Um, I want to welcome also certainly my co-associate editor here, 
Dr. Soleiman, who will introduce shortly. It was a lot of fun actually putting this together, but most importantly, we cannot uh, but thank so much the experts in the areas of digital health who have contributed significantly to this uh, issue of the journal. Uh, what we wanna do today is have some interactive forum to highlight you know, the main areas of digital health. Who would have thought then when we started to think about this issue, which was uh, about late 2019, 2020, early 2020, before the pandemic occurred, that uh, we will have a stress test for digital health and how to take care of our patients. But to tell you the truth now, since most of us here in this country and even beyond have been introduced one way or another to digital health of how to take care of our patients in a socially distant fashion, if you will, this is certainly not the only area of digital health. It can affect population health, how we interpret studies, how we interpret, how we put together information that each one of us individually may not be able to grab a hold of what its implications are, what the diagnostic power is and how to manage patients. There are so many facets to it. And certainly there are some cautionary thoughts, you know, faced with all these areas here. Uh, I know the vast majority of individuals in the population have some kind of monitoring device when we're not, even our watches nowadays, Watch, watch almost everything we do and know where we are and so many other things. The question is, can we put all this to use, to good use? Yes, it is still early in the endeavor, but uh, you know there are, there's much studies, and I think we will share some of that with you, some objective studies as to what the effect of that is on how we take care of individuals. I'm not saying patients yet, and how people can take care of themselves and know more about their health so they can engage with their providers, uh, with other people, uh, and, and collaborate towards better health. So uh, without further ado, I think what we want to do today is in this live uh, webcast is to have a very short presentation from each one of the major contributors to this issue to give their perspective, no more than five minutes to leave time for us to interact as a panel, to answer your questions regarding that. What are some of the challenges? What are some of the opportunities that you deal with? And have a wonderful conversation because this is in the present, but certainly futuristic because I think this field is still rather looking at history. It is still in its infancy, no question about it. So, Ahmed, I think a uh, pleasure to have you here again with me. I know you put a lot of work in this. Uh, Dr. Soliman is our Associate Director for our cardiology clinic here at Houston Methodist and the DeBake Heart and Vascular Center. And I have to tell you, before we did virtual visits, he was the one who introduced it to us a few years ago. And in truth, he was the only one doing it at that time. <laughs> now we're all versatile in it. And uh, and he will start, uh, start us off with talking about telemedicine in the cardiovascular world. Is it ready? And, uh, and in the before Ahmed gets going, I just want to remind our viewers that if you have any questions or comments, please uh, submit them. All you have to do is text DBAKI to 37607 and send us your questions, and we hope that we can uh, do some of that at the end. 
Ahmed. Unmute. <laughs> thank you very much, uh, Dr. Zogby, Dr. Quinones. Thank you very much. I um, will talk about uh, the article that we wrote in regards to uh, telemedicine. Um, let me see if we... I can see your slide. One. Uh, there, you go. there we go. There we go. All right. So um, I, as Dr. Zogby was saying, I've, I've been an advocate for telemedicine um, for a couple of years since I graduated from uh, fellowship. The, the main reason for it is not necessarily because it was a cool thing to do at the time, but to me, um, it made sense. Um, it made sense from a care um, a vehicle for our patients, for our practice. So we wanted to get a glimpse of how telemedicine actually evolved. It's interesting that the thought that telemedicine is relatively a new cool concept, but it turns out that it's actually been around for a while. But we want to look at some of the past, but we're going to talk about what the future may hold. So it has been since around the 1940s that the concept itself of telemedicine or remote management has been in the works in one way or another. Um, but what I would like to emphasize is actually the opportunities that are available, that is available by, uh, for, via telemedicine. You know, there's a lot of issues in our healthcare system, a lot of lost opportunity, um, and it basically is an opportunity for us to provide better care. It can be better managed without the every six to 12 month in-person physician office visit. Um, a mere example of this is how bad we are managing hypertension as a patient. Telemedicine can be a major tool for this management. But as you see, it has to be combined with tools. These tools can range from anywhere from simple Bluetooth blood pressure devices um, connected to electronic health record systems to AI, AI systems, artificial intelligence systems to identify different red flags. As many around the country um, and the world have dived headfirst into virtual care, some voluntarily, some involuntarily, many are voicing frustrations with the process. Optimizing a virtual visit is extremely important, and it's all in the prep. You know, before COVID-19 crisis, Dr. Zogvio was saying, I was doing telemedicine um, since about 2018. I used to talk to my patients at the time of the visit about telemedicine and explain to them what we can and cannot do th through these visits. I would verify they have my chart. We use Epic in our electronic health record, electronic health record system. Um, they would send me their data, their blood pressure, activity, et cetera. If a practice has the flow set up, it makes the net time that you spend with the patient much more personable, rather than trying to figure out these elements throughout your visit. So telemedicine is part of digitalization. So should we? Should we not? We have to note that the world around us is already becoming more digital. When was the last time you had to physically go to a bank? The world is changing around us very quickly, and unfortunately, the world of medicine is not catching up. I'm going to give an example. This is the we are not waiting movement. 
um, through my daughter, type 1 diabetes, I've learned about this movement. This is basically an open source system that is moving a lot more faster and a lot more aggressive than many companies. It's an open source system that anyone can download and use for better control of their diabetes. It connects insulin pumps to continuous glucose monitoring for what is self-described as an artificial pancreas. It is not FDA approved, but it is reported being used by almost hundreds of thousands of people around the world. And while they are still working on formal trials, people are not waiting and self-reporting hemoglobin A1Cs that are much, much more better than they've ever been for these patients. But again, these are not necessarily formal trials. Engagement via telemedicine is also something very important. We have shown examples of how regular engagement does not, I'm sorry, does result in better care for patients. So this is an example of a more complete remote monitoring report, what it should look like. This is an ischemic cardiomyopathy patient, previous cabbage, multiple aspects for his or her care. And no, I did not put in the Tresto just to give a T-star heart failure, guys. Let me add one part to this, and I know I'll probably get in trouble for this, but this patient in, let's say, some of the private practices would probably get an annual nuclear stress test. Remote monitoring and telemedicine on a regular basis monitoring this patient and providing better care, both physical and medicinal, will probably get them the same reimbursement on nuclear scans, but it will probably give much better care than the usual uh, uh, annual follow-up for stresses and so forth. Digital medicine, telemedicine does not come without challenges, just like anything else. We noted that some of these challenges are shared between patients and clinicians and practices. Social and racial disparities are even more clear now with inability uh, uh, to access broadband internet access. Reimbursement for clinicians are becoming less of a bit of a concern, but the cultural part, in my opinion, is one of the strongest challenges on both ends. Privacy is a major concern as noted uh, in doc by Dr. Mandrell in his article. Language can be solved by three-way systems with a translator. Technical skills is a solvable factor. We solved it in our system. Patients initially had to sign up for MyChart to be able to get access, and now we're able to send them a text message just like Doximity, and basically um, they, all they have to do is press on a link. So simplifying technical aspects makes things a lot more easier. To summarize, I believe that telemedicine can provide access for those that don't have access. It can provide better access for those that have not so good access. It can also provide better and frequent monitoring for patients that need better chronic care. But you have to know the tools that you have and how to use them. Um, and and uh, thank you very much, Dr. Zagby, Dr. Quinones. And let me uh, present our next speaker, um, Dr. Nasser. Um, Dr. Nasser is our colleague here. He's, a, he's the Chief of Cardiovascular Disease Prevention here at Houston Methodist and Co-Director for the uh, Center of uh, Outcomes Research here at Houston Methodist. Um, he's only been here for the last years uh, and, and so, but feels like he's been here for a while, previously at Yale. Um, um, let me, sorry, my screen went out somehow. Can you still see me? Sorry. Yes, we can see. Um, so um, I was talking about Dr. Nasser, um, his interest in preventive cardiology, 
big data applications for population health management, improving patient experiences and eliminating disparities. Uh, Dr. Nasser. Hey, uh, Ahmed, thank you so much. Me, can you hear me? Uh, yes, yes, we can. Get out of my... Well, uh, first of all, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Zogby, Dr. Suleiman, for getting all of us together at the very early in 2021 to celebrate the potential digital and big data transformation in healthcare. And I think there are reasons to be excited. And if you look back, there is no other time in history of mankind that we had so much healthcare data. For example, just end of last year, 20, more than 2,300 billion gigabytes of healthcare data was generated, which is exceeds like two and a half time capacity to entire medical capacity in the world to house it. So much so that we'll need AI to track it. Now, <laughs> I've quickly raised your anticipation. Even quicker, I'll dampen it down. Uh, I'll say despite so much data and opportunity, I don't think any of us can claim we have seen any shift in how we practice medicine. Yeah, we have discovered a large reservoir of oil, but hasn't converted into any meaningful product. In, in fact, it's a paradox that we live in the time of data overload, but you can be still considered to be in the dark ages of information drought. Um, unfortunately, this is the sobering reality and the current state of healthcare data utilization in 2020. Now, if you look all around us and ask the question, what other industries are doing with their data? The basic answer is most of them are using it to reduce variation in developing a superior product with greater longevity at a lower price. Now, when we look at it from the healthcare lens, it's all about quality, outcomes, and cost. Now, as these industries, as we are speaking right now, these industries are adopting. I remember Harlan Cromwell giving in the analogy of Google learning with every click, Amazon with every purchase, Facebook with every post, and Tesla with every mile. And the goals of all of them are making a better consumer-centric product. On the other hand, if you look clearly what's happening under the hood in our healthcare R&D efforts in this space, rather than emphasizing data applications to enhance healthcare delivery, and overcoming this vast existing variation, we mainly remain preoccupied in risk prediction models. I openly challenge my peers from six to seven leading institutions in this country on this call, as well as the audience. If anyone can raise the hand and come and say in the next one week, we, we can provide you simple insights from our institution, how many patients are there with established cardiovascular disease? who are falling through the cracks, not for everything, just for the lipids management. Can we calculate the costs needed to address these gaps? Do I have a geo mapping of places that needs more attention? What are the patient physician practice factors related to these therapeutic inertia? And you may wonder why we're not investing time, resources and infrastructure in these very basic applications prior to getting excited about the more futuristic applications. And the answers I have received that not sensational enough to be published in digital nature, not innovative enough for an NIH grant, or transformative enough for foundations to present this idea to the community leaders. But someone needs to get it done if your true judgment is criteria is impact. And what I've found at our institution at Houston Method is the resounding sentiment is that we are tired of the current inertia. So rather than wait for someone to challenge, we'll do it ourselves. 
So now challenged by our leadership, we are responsing with dedicated resources under the auspice of the newly developed Center for Cardiovascular Computation and Precision Health, uh, uh, thanks to Dr. Zogby, over the next three years, where we are going to have strategic investment in data, not only in data science capacity, but expertise over the next few years. The goal is to develop a robust, real-time, high-performance system, not only that, but human expertise uh, that can harmonize ingest not only the entire system data, but also provide opportunities to supplement in inputs beyond EMR, be it variables, and a, a lot of our work on social determinants of health, direct patient engagement on lifestyle psychosocial effects, of course, tremendous biobanking opportunities, and of course, the imaging data. Now, we, but what we are trying to do is making sure that the urgent and current needs are not forgotten. And we learn from the operational efficiency models created by other industries. And the basic goal is we're trying to do is improve healthcare. While we do aspire to play a role in more advanced analytics, our first priority remains population health. For example, our prime objective is how can we translate data science into applications that are products and tools that will enable, for example, easy visualization of the scope, the issues, and the depth of these challenges. For example, just looking at lipid management and how can we create advanced analytics, not only to understand the factors of therapeutic inertia, but also modeling on most effective way to overcome these hurdles and also have front-end products that enhance the communication of information, decision support systems, in a way that decision makers are positively influenced patients and clinical behaviors. Now, truly our ultimate goal is to produce an end-to-end -end learning health system in the entire life cycle of data capture to analysis, to tool, to application. Prime goal, producing better health and outcomes. And in this journey, we'll be engaging all the stakeholders at every phase. The idea is digital innovation to improve health, maximize the dividends from our healthcare cost, lower the costs, and enhance patient experience, which is the, I would say, the quadruple aim of the population health management. And I hope as we progress in this journey, we'll have the opportunity to partner with all of you here together. Thank you so much again. Dr. Zogby and Ahmed for the opportunity. And before we go Thank to you. the next speaker, I again want to remind all of our audience that you have an opportunity to dialogue with us and ask us questions. Text DeBakey to 37607. Thank you. Thank you, Miguel. Uh, our next speaker truly needs no introduction. Jim Min, a leader um, in cardiovascular imaging, you may know him as the big leader in CT in so many areas. Uh, but I just want you to think a little bit about his major contributions, which is, uh, in addition to just visualization and his expertise in CT, he's really looking, and he started looking a few years ago, as to all the individual components that go into imaging. We may interpret CTs in a simplistic way day to day. A percent stenosis, whether there is, um, you know, plaque, yes or no. But the significance of that from a clinical point of view, from a prognostic point of view, from a data point of view is certainly beyond a yes or no answer. And uh, I want you just to think a little bit before his presentation as to the evolution a bit of imaging 
because that's what he's going to address in the digital world of how we were doing this in uh, films, right? Cut films, echocardiograms that were on VHS tape not too long ago, truly. Nothing was digital. And now with all imaging modalities, all of them are digital nowadays. What can you do beyond our human eyes? Because our human eyes can, can focus on one or two things or three things, but the information is amazing in there. So the implications for machine learning of learning what the humans do in addition to more and artificial intelligence to help us put things together is really uh, amazing. I know we're starting in this field and uh, he is among the best speakers in it. So Jim, with all your contributions and now with Clearly, uh, we're really uh, very interested in what you're gonna tell us and, and your article is also amazing. So thanks again. Unmute. Thanks so much, Bill. Like, thanks for the warm introduction. And um, I think that you essentially gave my talk for me, but <laughs> I um, let me just start here. Like, um, so uh, I, I'm not going to talk about the article. In the article that we wrote, it was sort of a contemporary summary of all of the uh, machine learning that you've seen in cardiovascular imaging um, across all modalities. And the majority of those articles uh, that we've summarized really focus on image segmentation. And so you see these kinds of um, things in the media and articles and people show this kind of chest x-ray. And what I will say is I will try to share with you just a few thoughts on the next few minutes of where I think we need to go in uh, machine learning and cardiovascular imaging. But what I will start with is that I don't think placing a red dot on an image is a healthcare solution, right? So I think we need to find something that's more practical than image segmentation that we can apply in day-to-day -day practice. And the first thought that I would share with you is that I think in order for us to adopt machine learning, we're going to have to refocus um, our, our field, right? Our field is the most evidence-based field. Um, it is based on uh, the randomized control trial um, as sort of the focal point of proving out something. It focuses on standard statistics over here on the left, where we come in with some theory um, and a hypothesis. We design a randomized trial. We um, control everything except for one variable, and then we uh, conclude um, based on that randomized trial whether or not something works or, or not. And machine learning is the exact opposite of that, right? We have no theories. We come in with no assumptions. We say this is, quote, unquote, black box until machine learning started to work, and then now it's considered an unbiased approach where you just have a tremendous amount of data, and empirically, a machine can start to figure out what's going on. Um, it's nonlinear, and uh, we'll talk about that, and we'll also talk about multidimensionality reduction. But the goals are the same, right? We're trying to get to accurate predictions. We're trying to um, develop applications that give us a better understanding of the data. So how will machine learning affect cardiovascular imaging? I think in medicine for technology adoption, we tend to trail by 10 to 15 years every other field, as Kerm alluded to. And so I think all we need to do is look at sort of what has been done before us, and then we can just emulate that path. And so certainly Kerm talked about the big data issue. And certainly, you know, when you just do search, that's a big data problem. It's a natural language processing problem. If you want to start to recognize things in, you know, objects and image analysis, like th those algorithms are already superhuman. This is a static still frame. But if you saw how fast a machine can recognize things in, a, in an image, um, it, it is already the performance is superhuman. 
We can also do predictions, right? Here's a, a, it's a machine learning algorithm called AlphaGo that consistently beats world-time uh, Go champions. Um, and the reason that's important is that this game of Go actually has more moves in it than atoms in the universe. So the fact that a computer can sort of understand what it's doing now in anticipation of the future um, is, is a remarkable feat. And then um, I think seeing is something you see a lot of sensors with your Apple Watch and things like that. This is the basement of an Amazon fulfillment center where you can noticeably see that there are no humans. It's just robots sort of sensing and going around. And you can start to um, amalgamate all these things together and all of this object recognition and sort of real-time decision-making um, are, are seen in autonomous self-driving vehicles. And then finally, you'll take all of that information and you'll do actuation, right? So this is um, sort of a machine learning-based approach. This is a robot from Boston Dynamics that's about to do a backflip in a way that a human could never consider to do. So if we think about all of these different um, areas, I think that the one reason that we're going to need machine learning and cardiovascular imaging is simply data overload, as Dr. Zogby pointed out. This is a single left anterior descending artery. And if you think about what you're looking at here, when you look at one still frame of a CT, it's on a 512 by 512 pixel matrix. There's about 300 images in a CT scan. There's 20 phases across the cardiac cycle. And let's say you have to read 20 images. You're trying to interpret about 3.2 billion pixels per day. And I think that's just something that's pretty hard for us to do as humans. The second reason I think that we're going to need machine learning and imaging is because of this whole idea of nonlinearity. And so, you know, in everything that we do statistically, we always try to make things linear, right? So if they're not linear, we transform it to a linear and we try to binarize things or we try to ordinalize things when life isn't like that. Like many relationships are just nonlinear and that's what machine learning will allow us to do. It will also allow us to take multiple different types of data and just sort of stack them on top of each other so we can understand this multi-dimensional data, whether it's imaging plus the biometrics plus labs plus genomics, et cetera, et cetera, and to really try to understand that and reduce the multiple dimensions of data into outputs that are, um, that are reasonable to us. So as we think about the way we assess risk, for example, for a diabetic, and you think about the pooled cohorts equations or the ASCVD risk scores, we simply just code yes, no, somebody's diabetic. When we don't consider um, the presence, coexistence of metabolic syndrome or race and ethnicity, age and gender, does somebody have good glycemic control? Is it insulin requiring? Do they have end organ damage like nephropathy from their diabetes? And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff, right? What types of diabetes medications? How long have they had it? Have they been hospitalized? And have they been in an ICU? And all of this affects risk, but we just don't code that. And I think that's a, an opportunity for a machine to be able to do that for us. Just sort of the last couple of slides is how do you integrate this nonlinear multidimensional data? I think you have to do it in a way that um, provides actionable clinical insights rather than red dots or white dots on images. So here you see a CT scan. We've segmented out an artery. You can see a cross-section of that artery. But even as you go deeper and deeper into it, there's all this pixel-level data that we're just throwing away, and it can offer us information um, beyond what our eyes can typically see. So if you say, well, what am I trying to get out of this picture here? You want to quantify things. You want to categorize things as stenotic or ischemic. You want to figure out the risk of heart attacks and what features coalesce uh, with each other to increase that risk. You want to start to rank the, the, the things in orders of, of dangerous to, to safe. And then you want to try to integrate it into all of the other patients' data. 
It turns out these are things that a machine is particularly good at, right? Machine learning is very good at segmentation, classification, regression, clustering, association, ranking, and then ultimately taking all of that multidimensional data and reducing it into an output that we can act upon. And that's sort of how I'll leave you. I think that we need to take all this fancy math and all this fancy computer science and remember that we just need to go back to the basics. So I think we need to deliver the data in a small way that uh, that we as humans and patients can digest. And so to take all of the fancy machine learning and implement it in a way that we can deliver that data to patients and doctors you know, with tools that they can use and leverage. So I'll just stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Jen. Beautifully summarized. Beautifully summarized. Dr. Zagby, I'm going to... So um, our our next author, our next presenter is Dr. Um, Sanjeev Bhavnani. Um, he's a cardiologist, principal investigator um, at the Healthcare Innovation Practice Transformation Lab at uh, Scripps Clinic. Um, he was a Qualcomm uh, Wireless Health Scholar at, TS at the TSRI, uh, involved in the design of next-generation digital medicine clinical trials. Um, he serves on innovation advisory boards, um, multiple national medical societies, including the ACC, and that's where I actually met him uh, personally. Um, and has worked with digital health uh, think tanks to develop the Connect legislation, which is, um, if nobody, uh, if anybody knows, this is the legislation uh, in 2019 that um, um, made telemedicine uh, what it is, or uh, made it uh, available as it is today. Um, he has a very interesting article uh, that um, is titled "Digital Health Opportunities and Challenges." to develop the next generation technology enabled models of cardiovascular care. Uh, Dr. Bhavnani. Thank you, Ahmed. Uh, and thank you, Dr. Zagvi, Dr. Kanonis, um, Methodist Debakey for this opportunity, really a lot of fun, right? And, and to my, my fellow panelists, right? To you know, advance a lot of these questions and controversies uh, forward to care. Um, so I'll make this uh, nice and short so we have time to discuss. But um, so as we as we speak about digital health, you know, we are largely talking about technologies um, and hopefully by the end of this, you know, we'll realize that it's not only technologies, right? It's, it's a process of care, right? And we're all experiencing this right now, as uh, I said before, about telemedicine right? um, on our doorstep that use it in 2019. And now we're using it as part of our everyday practices. But it's it more it's a technology, it's a vector for communication, actually an implemented way to deliver cardiovascular care and healthcare. Questions remain regarding the quality, but you know, we're moving towards hybridized models. And as we look towards digital health, uh, we are seeing a plethora of new devices. I can uh, count on one hand the number of technologies we had access to uh, eight years ago um, to Design clinical trials, and now no matter where you look, you can see a new wearable tool, a new sensor, a new smartphone connected device. In fact, if you poll your patients, right, um, you will be surprised how many of them are actually using a connected care device as part of their health um, and their health care. So there's rings for sleep monitoring, retin retinal scanning devices using the camera, human genome sequencing devices that have been miniaturized to a USB sized device laboratory testing on the phone, uh, and watches, smartphone ultrasound, as many of you are familiar with. And so a lot out there. 
But, you know, you know, there's a paradox, right, between what we're seeing here and what we're speaking about and what the real world looks like. So in one picture over here, it is uh, an emergency room in Southern California. Another picture is a DMV in Southern California um, and probably in your local areas as well. So it is a very analog world and healthcare is no different. So it is hard to tell the difference sometimes. Therefore, how do we design digital health and virtual care? We need, we need to be thoughtful, uh, but we also need to recognize the wheel in which we are designing in, um, especially today. So as an example, right? Many have a, a, a smartwatch that can do an EKG, right? And we have had this for a couple of years now. So we ask questions now, basic questions, right? Design a digital health device and then look for a healthcare problem, right? I challenge many of my panelists, uh, many of you on the uh, who are listening in, do you use this as part of patient care, right? Well, then there's the other approach, identify a healthcare problem and then create a digital health device, right? And these, these are similar, but they are also, you know, at, at the roots, 180 degrees different. One, a very Silicon Valley way of looking at healthcare, and the other way of actually looking at healthcare process, patient-physician interactions, right? Our interface with individuals for the continuity of care. So questions still remain. What, what we have to then start looking at is not just, again, about a technology, it's about how will digital and virtual designs impact CV care? What are we hoping to achieve with devices and analytics? for new risk prediction models for subclinical disease, targeted therapies, um, how, what are our measures of healthcare outcomes? And in that, right, is where we're looking at technology as a vector for data, multidimensional data sets using sensors at home. Now we have serial data points on at-risk individuals for primary or secondary prevention. What are we going to do with that information? How do we integrate it? How do we put it into a dynamic clinical decision support model? Right. So many, that, as we're built on this, that we're really looking at a new digital process of care. Right? And so in this, uh, in, in the part of the, the, the journal article, what can digital health advance? Well, patient-centered technology co-designs, right? This is shared care more than ever now, right? So to bring patients, their caregivers, their care model, into our designs versus being the recipients of what we're building. Digital health patient monitoring, I'll show you some examples on real world evidence and real world practice with how they're being used. And then how we're moving from, from, from devices to data to electronic phenotyping, multidimensional data sets for individualized risk prediction. So show me the data, right? Here are some examples um, in, in panel A of a implantable pulmonary artery sensor for pressure measurement in congestive heart failure. And you know, the, the, the check engine light, right, um, in heart failure, to say if pressure goes down, right, what happens to patient outcomes? Can we now create that process of care where medication titration occurs with a validated and true data point of the severity of heart failure and its symptoms? Uh, continuous glucose monitoring, uh, to look at hyperglycemia, but also hypoglycemic unawareness. In cardiology, we, it's now paired with diabetology, uh, with the medications we use. Can we use new data streams to identify who is at risk, but also who is benefiting? Smartphone watches for patient-triggered blood pressure assessments. 
versus the one time per day or per week, but now triggered by individuals at the time they want to measure their blood pressure. Again, new data set. We've not seen this before in hypertension monitoring. And then smartphone EKG, right? And examples of looking at almost real time atrial fibrillation tracking triggered by patients in a data model of physicians and their clinics monitoring that data and for medication titration. So the next generation data analytics, electronic phenotyping of health and disease. We've heard from our panelists before, we need to bring in a lot more data sets. And it's a lot, there's a lot of digital data sets and more than we take advantage of, right? Our electronic medical record data sets, uh, medication coding, data, claims data, imaging, ECG, many digital data sets into a digital representation of disease using new digital hacking devices, start looking at data analytic approaches, similarity networking, cluster analyses, neural networking to identify those phenotypes of health and disease. So we're making headway towards it. There are still many questions uh, that remain and uh, you know, we'll, we'll continue in this discussion, especially with our panelists. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Sanjeev, very much. Really elegant and very nice. Our next speaker will address a continuation of what Dr. Batnani was saying is from a patient's perspective, right? All these apps that are available, and there are quite a few available for patients. The question Tim is asking is, are we getting our money's worth on all that investment? Dr. Garson is, uh, is no stranger to many of you does not really need an introduction. He's a dear friend of mine and uh, really an authority in healthcare policy and so many other aspects. You may not know that he's a pediatric cardiologist by training, was the chair of PD cardiology here at Texas Children's Hospital. Uh, dean, past dean and provost at UVA, um, director of healthcare policy at Texas Medical Center here, and now he's at the University of Houston, also a professor and Director of the Healthcare Policy and Innovation and Practice. Tim, it's great to have you. Uh, look forward to your perspectives on it. I know we don't have much data, but I think it's important to know. <laughs> this has been a blast, William and Miguel. I, I really appreciate sort of being part of, uh, sort of being the four smart people plus me. So I, I'm, I'm delighted to be part of this group. I, I would tell you um, that I, let me get this so it works here. Um, hold on, let's try this. Um, there you go, it's coming. Yep, and that, great. Yeah, with, no, yeah here you go, got it. Okay, with, with uh, apologies to Dr. Min, um, we did have a couple of hypotheses, and I feel like I'm looking backwards because obviously we shouldn't have, um, but I did. And I think the best news about this is Kimberly Aguillard, um, very, very smart person, did the lookups, did the data, did the initial writing. I give her tremendous credit. She just couldn't be here today, but... I think as you'll see in a minute, uh, some of this may be a little counterintuitive. And we did really simply say, all right, look, as we just heard, everybody in the world is wearing something. Um, does it work? 
sure, it, it's there. Now, we looked at diabetes, we looked at diet, we looked at fitness. I'm not going to talk about individual devices. We do talk about some of them in the paper. I don't think that's probably a good idea here. Um, but what I'm going to walk you through data, and pardon the expression, data, um, of starting with diabetes. And we did look at, again, I apologize for being a backward looker to Dr. Mann. We did look at randomized clinical trials and we looked at duration. And I think this is important, folks. I'm gonna, we're gonna come out of this at the end with just a few things that I think are important, but you can't find very many of these studies that go out six months. And you can't exactly determine doing a randomized trial of some, why somebody stops. Um, but I can give you the data, and the data are here, that few are, um, are longer than six months. Two had a statistical difference in A1C. And interestingly to me, and I want to have a conflict of interest in a minute. Additional support from a healthcare provider may have been partially responsible for even the minimal improvements. Okay, that's from this paper. And uh, I, conflict of interest, I, I run a uh, program called Grand Aids that is exactly a healthcare provider. Fortunately, it looks like we may be working together with some of you. Um, but uh, so I'm, I, I think it's important to say that um, sometimes a person can be helpful up close and personal. And obviously telemedicine is really important uh, in some people, as Dr. Suleiman said, some people it works, some people it doesn't. Similar here in the diabetes, four out of 21, more than six months. Diet tracking, 27 randomized trials. The apps help to reduce obesity, um, up to six months, no difference past six months. So six months is important for a number of reasons. Hutchison meta-analysis, insufficient evidence for the effectiveness of e-health with weight loss maintenance. And here is more than half of the sample abandoned tracking by the 10th week. Activity trackers, you know those well. Um, again, not mentioning names, but here we have a 34% increase in step count. The problem is that the ACC and AHA say that step count isn't good enough. Now, a little bit of good news from Yen, 19 randomized trials on wearable significant effect on body weight, 12 weeks or longer, more effective, but this had a problem in that they only got data from people consistently wearing the technology and there were few. So in conclusion, today, all right, not tomorrow morning, today, there is little long-term effect of the apps that everybody's using. The, whoop, I want to stop here, hold on in that time. Okay. We don't know why. I mean, I think I know why, but somebody's got to look and see as we're moving together, why six, why people don't wear these things. The methodology needs improvement 
of these studies. Very, very few randomized trials out past six months, few at three months. And so the posed question is, are we getting our money's worth? No, right? Because there's not a lot of effectiveness and therefore almost any cost would be too much. Now, this is new stuff. And I'm sure that we're gonna see more and more important studies come out. Recommendation, he said arrogantly, to those that are doing, that are working in this area. One, please get long-term data. Please get data from six to 12 months. And two, therefore, please do randomized trials out to six and 12 months. And if, as I'm concerned about, we can't get uh, people who actually wear these things consistently for six months, we gotta find out how we can get them to do that. That's a research question. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, Tim. Well, thank you very much, um, Dr. Garson. This actually is is perfect for um, our next um, uh, speaker, our next author, Dr. John Mandrola. Um, Dr. Mandrola is an, an electrophysiologist um, at Baptist Health in Louisville, Kentucky. He's the chief cardiology correspondent for Medscape. And has a weekly podcast, which um, he works and dissects on different trials and discuss different different articles. Um, I personally got to know him uh, through the podcast as a fellow and now as faculty in my 45-minute drive every day, um, uh, listening to him. Um, and uh, he is going to discuss um, his article um, about the concerns of digital health. Dr. Mandrola. Okay, um, thank you. Thank you very much for asking me to be part of this. As usual, I'm the contrarian, and uh, I apologize in advance. <laughs> um, I'm going to talk about, you know, I'm you just, don't need to, John. <laughs> I'm just a doctor. I'm, I'm just the, like the, you know, I might have a podcast, but my real job is just taking care of patients. It's what I've done for 24 years. So, um, you know, uh, I've heard a lot about, a lot about these amazing things and, and I use these things like remote monitoring for devices. And I've even given a talk at oncology meetings about, uh, remote monitoring during cancer therapy. And I've, you know, there's studies on smartphones after AFib ablation, and I'm a huge fan of point of care ultrasound. I love that thing. And I've done telehealth during the pandemic, like all of us. But, but here's the difference. The key difference is that all of these digital devices are used in sick patients who are asking for our help. And I think my greatest concern is really the, the medicalization that these devices and, and this, 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 this digitalization can do. Okay, so, you know, here's, here's I've been working on Z-scores lately. I've been trying to understand, going back to my math. You know, when I started medical school, um, we had CKMBs, you know, this was the tail end, you know, three Z-scores. And then we had troponins. Now we have high sensitivity troponins. And, and pretty soon, the more we're, we're monitored, I just worry if, if, if we can really define normal. And I guess this is one of my greatest concerns. And you can say empirically, you know, what, what have we done? What has the digital revolution done? You know, this is data from the CDC. And you can see that every category of, of humans is really lifespan, life expectancy is flat. So despite all this monitoring and all this device devices, 
I don't know that we've really impacted much in terms of uh, longevity. And then I, I think, I think it's because so much of medicine and so much of what we learned is, is this Cartesian frame. And what I mean by that is, you know, uh, uh, you know, the cardiac system is broken, so we'll fix it. The endocrine system is, will bro is broken, so we'll fix that. And, and thinking of this is thinking that we're still in this Cartesian frame. And I, I go to my screening studies I mean, cancers are cancers are number one killer. Um, and here's a study from Gil Welch's group looking at disease-specific mortality rates versus overall mortality rates. And I show this to to sort of decrease the enthusiasm for for uh, screening for disease. Look, look, the black bars are death due to cancer, but look, death due to non-cancer is the majority of the reason why people die. And so. If you're screening for cancer, the, one of the number one killers, uh, you're still missing all of the gajillions ways uh, humans can die. And, you know, John Unidi's group uh, published one of probably the best meta systematic reviews and meta-analysis, and they looked at screening for disease in um, a systematic review of meta-analysis, randomized trials for screening for disease in asymptomatic adults. And again, reductions in all-cause mortality are very rare or non-existent. And as a doctor in private practice, in regular, you know, middle America, I worry about sending more patients into the healthcare system, mainly because of cascades. This was a beautiful study by a Harvard, by Harvard group looking at cascades of care after incidental findings. And, you know, there was a survey of physicians and a great majority of physicians report cascades causing psychological harm and, and financial burden, and even small amounts of physical harm just by sending patients to the doctor. And you know, Dan Morgan and I wrote an editorial for this study, and, and this basic everyday banal decisions like ordering a troponin or ECG or stress test, these are all unstudied uh, things that start cascades. And so I'll leave you with uh, briefly, that, you know, one of my favorite books is by Peter Skrubenik, The Death of Humane Medicine, and it's free. And it starts with this quote, the pursuit of health is a system, is a symptom of unhealth. And basically, healthy people don't think about uh, digital devices or being healthy. They're just healthy. And so I think this is one of the biggest, uh, one of the biggest uh, concerns I have, and my wife is a, you know, she's a palliative care and hospice physician. Really, the moral core of medicine, as written by Iona Heath, is the relief of suffering. And I've yet to see how digital medicine and big data and biometric sensors can relieve the subjective experience of fear and distress. And with that, I'll leave you um, with hopefully some time for discussion. That was beautiful, Dr. Mandrola. Um, John, I, I, it, it's, this is not a contrarian view. This is, in a way, looking critically at what we do so that we, what we do is meaningful from a patient's perspective, from a, whatever, from a healthcare perspective. And I think what I like about, besides your thoughts regarding this, is your, your bell curve, meaning are we driving with everything else more and more sensitivity? I mean, even picking up few PVCs or PACs and you're 
patient is calling you and that's what's happening now on their smartwatches, right? So it, it is so sensitive detection, yet it could be noise, right? Not, not, not changing anything that we should do, maybe driving more testing. So I think we have to be cautious. Certainly it's very powerful, but we have to be cautious here. <clears throat> I, I, I just I'll leave, I just don't want to hog it, but I will uh, I just say that I think that in in five to ten years, perhaps twenty years, we will better define normal, and and some of these biometric sensors will be will be normal, like you know, like everyday things that we do now, like a CBC and a, a chemistry panel. But right now, we're on this steep learning curve where uh, I I just I'm scared that that most clinicians and patients don't really uh, understand normal and we're detecting so much subclinical arrhythmia that I, that I see every day. Most of what I do is just reassure patients. But so anyways, I, I, I think the future will, will be, it will be, be beneficial and good, but right now we're struggling. So these have been uh, a fabulous uh, set of discussions and uh, we're going to be getting some room for discussion for dialogue. So just to tell our viewers, we might uh, go a little bit over the hour, maybe another five or 10 minutes, no more than that, uh, because the topic has been so exciting and so much room for areas of discussion. We've had one question that came in, um, one of many, but um, I guess this is for Dr. Nasser, for Kuram. Is there any place, any hospital, any system right now that is truly using AI on a practical basis to take care of patients, or are we still in an area of preparation, thinking through it, uh, maybe writing some papers, but not really using it every day? Uh, unmute. I think so. That was the question I also raised that, honestly, I don't see any meaningful changes. We have luminaries from six institutions, and I don't think, even if, as I said, the bare question as a preventive cardiologist, and I've had the privilege of working in many health systems that's asking, can anyone just tell me how many patients do we have with CBD? And for me, improving variations and outcomes and quality is all local. And I may disagree with some of the discussion that we need more RCT. I think so. This is more about improving quality and outcomes. Google and Facebook and Tesla and Amazon's, nobody's doing RCTs. They're solving issues. And for example, in our health systems, we clearly know 50% of the right patients don't get the therapies they need. There is significant patient, physician, and practice level variations. And learning from other industries, um, we can overcome these unwanted variations by being smart about the digital tools. Unfortunately, most of the investment has been thrown into more of trying to walk on to fly to Mars rather than trying to walk on Earth. And I think so that's where we have to start investing. And each system would have to see what are their local needs and where they need to be. But honestly, Mike, I don't think so. There is any system that is optimizing any of the existing data resources in trying to improve their uh, healthcare delivery. So right. in, 2000, in 2019, there was an article uh, that came out in JAG by uh, Samad and Associates, very intriguing. In fact, I, I have used it in some of my presentation because they took the clinical data from their EMR and they mixed it with the echocardiographic data that was obtained 
In fact, a lot of that data was obtained semi-automatically with AI and created models where they had five-year predictions of mortality that was beating almost anything else with an ROC of 0.89. I, I thought it was something very innovative and I, I guess yet not being used every day. So I wanted to ask Jim, since that's imaging is your, is your baby, uh, where are we on that? Where are we on, on this ability to combine clinical demographic data with imaging information and then be able to provide much better models for prediction? Uh, yeah, I think that's a really great question. Like the, I, I don't think we're very far along. I think Dr. Zogby said it best um, right at the start of this that we're really in the infancy of all of this. And I think that, you know, part of it is that there's a lot going on. And I think that, um, you know, I have, there's this quote by Albert Einstein that he said, if I have an hour to solve a problem and my life depended on it, I'd use the first 55 minutes trying to figure out the right question to ask. And I, I see that there's a lot of activity, but sometimes it's not the right question that we're trying to, to solve or the problem that we're trying to solve. And just to comment to Dr. Garson, like I, I do, I believe in the randomized control trial. Absolutely. Like we should not discard that. That is the cornerstone of our field. Um, but I also recognize that with some of these machine learning solutions, it's going to get to the point where it's, you know, historically it was called black box and now it's called unbiased because it works and, and it can predict better. But there, there has to be some acceptance at some point that it is beyond our ability to, to comprehend it. And I, it I brings up a question. <laughs> it just, it I brings up a question. It. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I understand. I'm but actually, I, I do want to emphasize that because I think I'm that these machine learning on in, in, in the AI space. Um, to try to predict how to take care of people for six months. So I, I get ah, it, but I'm being a little bit yeah. funny. So no, I, I, I work in that very space and we probably will be working with William and company on exactly that issue. Yeah, I mean, we published a paper recently where we took about 100,000 uh, thoracoabdominal CT reports and did natural language processing to see if a computer could extract uh, stuff and then prognosticate outcomes. And it turns out it can do it very, very well. So now, like, I'll just pose one rhetorical question, but let's say, let's just use something easy, like diagnostic performance of looking at an image for something, like whatever endpoint you want, whether it's echo or nuclear or CT or MR. And let's say, you know, in a large multi-center trial, you prove that the algorithm is superhuman. And so now the algorithm outputs something and the physician disagrees. Then who's right? If you've already proven with evidence in very high quality studies that the algorithm is better than the human, then shouldn't we agree with the algorithm or should we agree with the human? And I, I don't have the answer to that, but I think we're but, heading into an arena where there's going to be so much data thrown at us. And the goal is to sort of cut through all the noise and make simple solutions. Like if I think about how, how to keep somebody healthy, it's like a healthy lifestyle, avoidance of toxic things getting on the right medications, ensuring compliance. That's about it, right? Like we don't like, but those are, those are not the problems that we're trying to solve with machine learning right now. We're doing all this fancy stuff with low hanging things like sensors because sensors are easy and there's a lot of data and you can create machine learning algorithms out of that. But I don't think it necessarily helps people. And the only last comment I'll say is like, I liked John's comment about the pursuit of health, but I think that there's one one um, maybe nuance, I think it's the maintenance of health. 
And where I fundamentally see that we have failed as a field is that we wait for people to come in with end-stage symptomatic disease rather than trying to identify solutions to maintain health. And I'm not saying that all these machine learning and a bunch of data is going to fix that. I don't believe that it will. I think it's just going to create a lot of data. But I think we need to convert that data into useful solutions that people can digest and understand why, where they are in terms of quote-unquote normal and how to maintain health rather than to pursue it. So we have here a question that came in for Dr. Solomon, and let's try to keep your answer brief. But uh, the question was whether telemedicine, telehealth could be a global thing. Could it be used to practice uh, across borders? Uh, I think uh, you might, you, I know that you have given uh, some thoughts to that. Yeah, um, yes, I think it can and it should. Um, again, remember that part, it's not just getting access to care, it's also getting access to better care. So um, you're, so within the states, uh, there are telemedicine laws um, that are still in process. So the ability for me to take care of a patient in Oklahoma or in Wyoming, um, or even remote monitoring or so forth. Um, at this point, it's going to, in, in regards to international telemedicine type of uh, practices, it's going to be, realistically speaking, either a con consultative service, uh, but not necessarily a uh, management service, because at the end of the day, you're still managing patients. And if you don't have a license to manage care in Mexico uh, for a patient that lives, that is physically in Mexico, um, it would be currently illegal. So um, that would require, hopefully, um, some advances in um, the, the legal aspect and the vision of different countries. And eventually, hopefully, um, we were able to make some sort of um, international practice to provide care to people across the, across the globe. I have a question for Dr. Garson, Tim. Um, listening to your... Uh, when you were asking yourself, asking as a general question, why is it that, that consumers or patients are not using these devices beyond a certain amount of time and actually reacting to them and getting healthier because of their use? Uh, one question came in is that could we develop a system of rewards? Um, we humans, we Americans particularly, love rewards in our pocket. So could there be perhaps the healthcare system develop some reward systems that would incentivize patients to actually, yeah, let me track my, uh, my steps and let me maybe uh, put some pounds, pounds down because I'm going to be getting some goodies? Well, the answer is, of course, the, the problem is what incentive, and uh, I mean, this will work, right? We know it, it, will, it will happen. There, there will be people that will use these longer than six months, or I, I just don't know, uh, you know, incentives, I'm sure yes. I mean, <laughs> my, my wife's master's thesis was looking at, a, at adolescence and medication compliance. And what she, she had 700 questions she gave the adolescents, and it came down to one answer and that is if you think you're going to die you take your medicine right and so there are stimuli and stimuli and i mean it was fascinating to, to look at john's data you know maybe we shouldn't be doing a lot of treatment of asymptomatic 
people. I don't know the answer to that. That can't be right. I mean, you know, else cardiovascular prevention would go away. But I think we're going to know a lot better 10 years from now what I mean, the answer, and I'll just say the app involves wearing something on your wrist that measures, you know, that measures steps. And the reason that it doesn't matter if it works is they have the most, probably the most marvelous marketing people on earth. And people buy them and, you know, ask somebody if they've really used it for six months consistently. And so I guess my, that would be a very long answer to a very short question. Yes, we will develop incentives, but I love the slide that where I did a bunch of electrophysiology growing up and the pacemaker salesman came running into my office burst open the door and said, Dr. Garson, Dr. Garson, we can measure every heartbeat in 24 hours. Isn't that wonderful? And I said, I don't care about measuring every heartbeat in 24 hours. That's not exactly what I said, but we're on live television. And so I think this notion that the engineers create devices to answer questions we don't have is something we're going to have to be very careful of and more and more careful. And I guess all I'd say is make sure people use it for six months and we can prove it. Among other topics. I could add something to that real quick. I think one of the major parts of this is the human element. You, you know, putting in data to a patient without the interaction is not very valuable. If the patient gets a report or gets some sort of communication from his physician saying your blood pressure is doing better, keep at it, or no, your blood pressure is not doing better, your exercise has improved over the last six months or has not, or so forth. I think that part of the interaction on the remote monitoring is not just a matter of getting, looking at what the watch shows or what the app on the phone shows, but the interaction with the patient, the engagement. If a patient that's engaged usually they're able to do it more. I have tons of patients that monitor blood pressure and they send it to me for the last year and a half, almost on a biweekly basis, even though it's stone cold normal, but they are engaged because I respond back to them and say, great job, keep up the good work, something simple. The other part of the enticement of people, you know, a lot of institutions do the same thing, right? They say, if you're able to do X amount of activity and you show your heart, your exercise capacity, et cetera, and so forth, they are able to decrease their premiums. This is kind of an indirect way of doing the same thing. So using your comments, and one of the things that John said, one of the viewers was paying attention very much to John's talks because the comment came up, um, you know, we're, if we use these devices, we're getting a lot of information. And the question this person has, obviously, I'm sure he's a practicing busy cardiologist, is are we going to be inundated with this amount of information coming back to us? And if we don't have a, uh, some sort of system to manage them, is, are we creating an overflow for practicing physicians that actually will eventually make their quality of life as a physician just affected. And they may just say, to heck with it. I don't want to do this. 
you mentioned a little bit of that, of you know, getting every PIC, every, every little noise in data patients sending to doctors, uh, maybe too many blood pressures being sent to doctors. Is there a point, if you have a busy practice, that you're basically going to just go, hey, this is too much? Um, <clears throat> that's why you have to have, that's why, unfortunately, you know, at times industry is ahead of the game, just, uh, you know, manufacturing things i think they're great ideas at times right but it is put in the hands or pockets or hand or or even inserted in patients right so and we have no data and uh, you start sending data to to physicians you will overwhelm the system right and number one it may not be good actually for patients so we have to ideally test them and see be pragmatic at the same time not inundate us with, with the completely normal data or even a blip that has no clinical meaning. Ultimately, it has to be translated. And this perhaps, is translational. Perhaps the ultimate solution, uh, Dr. Nasir, I can see him that he's beginning to think about it, is that in, instead of that data coming to a doc who is busy and trying to go home, <clears> is to come into a system that has the AI and has the ability to then manage that data, decipher it, and put it in some sort of form that the physician can then be able to do it without being overwhelmed. This has been a fabulous webcast. I have enjoyed it greatly. I've learned a lot from you all guys. So thank you very much to you, the participants, Dr. Sogby, Dr. Soliman, for being the guest editors in this issue. And thank you very much to the viewers for staying with us and enjoying this. Have a great evening. Thank you, good night. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for joining us for today's show. Hear more of these speakers in volume 16, issue four of the Methodist Debakey Cardiovascular Journal, available open access at journal.houstonmethodist.org. Check out the show notes for links. And of course, we'll love to continue this conversation with you on social media. How has digital healthcare affected your practice? And what do you think about its potential moving forward? Send us a tweet using hashtag CVNow and don't forget to tag us at DebakeyCVEDU. If you like the show, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can find more cardiovascular education opportunities through DeBakey CV Education by following us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. 